OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, it kind of sets us up for a, a great conversation. I feel like we've already started, so we're just going to keep it rolling. But uh, thank you very much, Jeff, for having and joining us today. I'm always excited to meet uh, another investor and learn a lot from you. And today, uh, I think we're going to get that for sure. So uh, why don't we start off by um, maybe giving us a little bit more about yourself, your background, where you've come from, where you're at, and then we'll jump further into uh, the chats that we're already having. That sounds great. So first off, thank you for, for having me on. I always enjoy meeting new people like yourself, exactly the same sentiment. Um, my background, so I'm originally from the East Coast of the States. I grew up in New Jersey. I worked in Manhattan on Wall Street after my undergraduate um, college uh, degree, which was in finance. So I was more of a, a numbers quantitative guy, economics and finance. And then I decided after a few years doing that, that I wanted to come out and get an MBA. And I thought, let me, I, I grew up on the East Coast and went to school on the East Coast. Let me try the West Coast. So I thought I'd do a two-year stint out here. I did my MBA at Berkeley and 100% uh, expectations of returning upon graduation to the East Coast and to my family and my career. And uh, that was 30 years ago this year. So I did not go back. <laughs> I kind <laughs> of fell years in love. Yeah, exactly. Quickest 30 years. I kind of fell in love with the, well, first and foremost, the weather is wonderful here in California. I, I'm a spring and fall kind of guy on the East Coast, and that's kind of 12 months of the year out here. Um, but even more importantly, the business environment around entrepreneurialism and the energy of the startup ecosystem was very attractive to me, the innovation ecosystem, I should say, back then. I started my career in uh, management consulting after graduate school, working mostly with large corporate uh, Fortune 250, Fortune 500 type uh, clients. And then about, I don't know, just shy of five years into that career, I heard someone say, those who can do, those who cannot consult. And I was a consultant. <laughs> and so I thought, well, maybe I should not be doing this. Maybe I should go put my entrepreneurial uh, aspirations to test. And I had studied entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurship uh, strategy and technology in my MBA program. So in 95, I launched into a serial entrepreneurial journey, which carried me through 2011, when my last entrepreneurial venture was building enterprise mobility solutions for large corporations. Um, my, uh, my business colleague, uh, business partner, and I just had different views of the world. He had come out of the large enterprise space as a very prominent executive, and we just had different um, perspectives, I should say. And so I was fascinated by the mobile enterprise space or the enterprise mobile space, but I knew I wanted to do something different than what I was doing in my startup. And I got recruited back out of being a startup guy into the corporate world, and I worked for a large company called Cognizant. Ironically, the largest company that I'd ever, I ever to this day have worked for. They have close to a quarter of a million employees. And I was hired in to start and manage the global enterprise mobility practice. So it felt very entrepreneurial and it was nice to have resources. But after just shy of two years, after almost two years, I decided, uh, I like to say they reminded me why I like working with startups and less bureaucratic organizations. And I jumped back out of that environment. And I am now the co-founder of a couple of startup accelerators. And my objective was to start something and build something that was there for entrepreneurs in a way that I wished existed when I was in my entrepreneurial journey. 
And so that's what I've been doing. I run one of the entrepreneurial uh, or one of the uh, startup accelerators, excuse me, that I'm the co-founder of, the one here on my background, Silicon Valley in Your Pocket. It's a virtual startup accelerator for global founders. Um, and then the other one is locally based here. I was a co-founder with many business partners locally based here in the Berkeley area. And we've had, we're on our 11th cohort in the local one. And Silicon Valley in Your Pocket runs a rolling cohort. So we don't actually have um, traditional start and stop times for cohorts. It's a rolling cohort. We've had over 100 companies come through that one from over 23 countries. And we have a partnership with UC Berkeley. They actually have a Spanish language version of Silicon Valley in Your Pocket, and they launched that across Latin America right at the beginning of the COVID crisis. So they, we've had one full cohort go through, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here um, once we reach the post-COVID world. Wow, that's amazing. And it sounds like a, a very well-designed career, and it's brought you back to entrepreneurship each time. So that's, uh, that's a, great, a great story. I do I keep finding my center. I keep finding my center in entrepreneurialism. So. Oh, that's good. I think it's uh, the hustle. It's uh, figuring out how you fit into the hustle and just keep it real and moving it forward. So that's amazing. Yeah. So you touched on a couple of things. And the one that kind of really stood out for me the most outside of obviously all these great accomplishments you have. And I'd love to dive into a bit more about how you structured and you went through being a co-founder. Because I think that there's a big shift in the when investors go in, there's a group of investors that only like to invest in co-founded companies. And then there's others that just say, you know what, I like a great idea in a business. And we've kind of mixed in both in our investments, but yeah. it's fascinating how much I'm really starting to see there's a bigger win. We'll edit this out, but there's a bigger win in this uh, um, with the co-founder side that there's really a lot more, uh, gunpowder being brought to the war. And, I, and I'm curious as to what made you think of doing it this way and what your feelings and outcomes were during that process. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I, it's even something I um, speak to in the curriculum, if you will, of Silicon Valley in your pocket around forming your entity. Um, I often have, I have one slide. I think the title is something like going, um, going solo is a no-no, something like that. Uh, meaning being a solopreneur is not um, going to fly very smoothly with investors. You can have the greatest idea, but if you're a solopreneur or a single, not, no co-founders, um, investors have a very difficult time. And I myself uh, agree with this, this attitude of investors. I have a very difficult time investing in an individual because I'm investing in a business and in a concept. And if I don't see a natural succession plan, um, there's an issue and I call it the Greyhound bus syndrome. Forgive my uh, analogy. Some people laugh when I use this analogy, but I do. I, it is part of my curriculum. I even put it in my curriculum, but I call it the Greyhound bus syndrome. You know, if I'm meeting with a solopreneur, we're having coffee at a coffee shop and they pitch me on their idea and I like it and I invest. And then we leave the coffee shop and they step off the curb and a Greyhound bus runs them over and kills them. My investment's gone. Because I didn't have a business. They didn't have a business. They had an idea that they as an individual were running with. And there isn't a succession plan or nobody to, as I would say, carry the torch of the business forward. And so I think having co-founders for a variety of reasons, that being an important one, succession plan and someone to carry the torch. But also, I just believe nobody knows everything. And um, you, need, you need a diversity of um, 
experiences, knowledge, et cetera, in a team in order to make a business go forward. And I promote that not just in founding teams or co-founding teams, but even in advisory boards. I promote uh, aggressively, I promote diversity in, in those elements of a business. Board, board members, specifically I do advisory boards. I don't recommend most startups have a board, an external board until their investors start coming in. Um, but I absolutely promote diversity of the team. And that means it can't be a single individual. And that, and how do you guys find that, uh, that working relationship? Is there a way to define it, build some KPIs off of it um, to keep you both fueled and driven forward? Uh, I think when you're a solopreneur, you kind of build a team around you and then you start to delegate off. But it's going to be different when you're bringing two people in that come in at the same level so or potentially coming in at the same level. How do you find that that works? Do you just a lot of businesses do the CTO and then the the uh, CEO. Is that kind of the same style that you go towards, or you look at more of you know what I can find someone in the tech space. I want someone in sales and marketing, so that's where they're going to fit. I'm going to yeah. fit here. What's the balance? I'm glad you went back and said uh, potentially equal, and I emphasize that because I always say a co-founder does. Uh, here's what it doesn't mean. We'll come to what it does mean in a moment. What it doesn't mean is someone who started the business at the exact same time as you. It doesn't mean they are equal in terms of responsibility or in terms of equity ownership. That does not define a co-founder. I mean, those things could be, but they are not mandated, so to say. They're not necessary that, it, that having the word or the title co-founder doesn't mean you're an equal. And so I often will say, if you're a business side person, you know, bring a technical. And I say that because the assumption is we're talking about technology enabled businesses. And so have a tech person, because at some point your intellectual property will probably revolve around some element of tech. So I would say if you're a business person, have a tech co-founder. If you're a tech co-founder, get a business person, try to balance that out. And then to me, the business side would handle the sales, the marketing, the go-to-market strategy. The tech side, of course, would handle the development of the solution, whatever, whatever the widget is. Um, uh, a lot of client implementation integrations, if there are things like that. So to me, that's generally uh, at a high level how I would approach it. Um, but I really think um, I had one founder come to me. I really liked him. I liked his idea. He was a solopreneur. I said to him exactly that. I liked him. I liked his idea. I said, but I'm not going to invest. And he said, why? I said, because you need a co-founder. If you don't have a co-founder who's a balance to you, I don't have a business I'm investing in. I don't invest in individuals. I invest in businesses. And so he came back to me. He had brought a co-founder who he had identified and brought in. It was a colleague of his. And the two of them came up uh, from, it was from Latin America. They were in Central America. We met and I subsequently invested in their business because I believed he understood the message. He took the coaching. Um, unfortunately, that venture didn't succeed for other reasons, but he, he understood where I was going with that comment and balanced himself out with people who could help uh, I'll guess say manage or administer other aspects of the business while he tended to the areas he was strong in. No, I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. And, and I've had a few instances where kind of coaching through and someone will always say, I'm looking for a co-founder CTO. Um, and I'm like, eh, you know, I'm not sure you really need a co-founder CTO. I think what you're looking for is a really good developer that can actually speak uh, to people um, what you're looking for is somebody that can drive another area of your business, but find someone that can actually drive sales, drive growth, because you can have a great CTO. 
uh, but they're not in there selling and they're going to get their heads in the weeds. And then you're just having another person that is building a great product and you're not out there making money. And that's the tough balance. I agree. I agree. The one thing I will say is a big push that I try to the extent that it's always possible is different, but as much as it's possible, I try to encourage strong channel partnerships from a sales and marketing perspective. I often say someone's already dealing with the clients you're trying to reach, figure out how to structure a relationship with that group, put another arrow in their quiver that they can, they're probably already an approved vendor. If it's a larger organization and like a procurement department manages those things. So don't try to break down every new path or beat down every new path that, uh, to get to these clients. If someone you know is already working with that same client base, try to forge a partnership, a channel partnership where they can uh, market your business. Obviously, that'll cost some points of the margin. That's okay, in my view, because you don't have the overhead of a, of a large sales team and you don't have the time it often will take to forge those direct relationships to the buy end buyer, the end clients. I love it, which is really find that funnel. Find something that's going to really make you stand out work that funnel, make it the best, focus, 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 and help it drive home some wins. Absolutely. One of the, one of the things that I, I really liked about um, our previous discussion, and we talked a bit about this, and you talk about it in your, um, the keynote that I watched, which yeah. I thought was fantastic. And there was only one comment I had is that I think when somebody, while you were just getting started, someone interjected and asked you a question, I'm like, what are you doing? It's a keynote. How can you do this? And I'm like, oh yeah, it's digital. You can do anything you want. It was so, set uh, up. It was set up that way for them to ask at that time. So okay. in, in fairness to them. And if I recall correctly, that individual asked a question that I, I, I asked their patients because I thought their question was coming up in a slide or three, something yes. like that. Um, yeah. So I recall that, but it was in fairness to that individual, it was set up where they could ask at any time. I always have the sense that if I'm presenting something and someone has a question, they're probably not the only someone. So let's clear it up because there's probably a lot of people who simply aren't asking, even though they probably have the same question. No, it was brilliant. And uh, it, it worked out quite well because you did uh, hit it home. And it kind of falls in line with this. The co-founder scenario is that you've built out this attractiveness quotient um, and how you really pitch or your AQ, how you pitch to um, investors and I kind of, the reason why I really like this part about the co-founder piece is because it fits so well into your attractiveness quotient. So maybe we can dive into that a little bit more and you can give us an example of where this has come from and then where you see these elements really benefiting a startup. Yeah, I mean, specifically to your question on the co-founder, I talk about the, uh, as part of the attractiveness quotient, what makes a business higher uh, or more attractive to investors um, one of the things I emphasize in that in that keynote is having the right team. And I put right in air quotes. And then I define what is the right team. And it is this diversity of, of skill sets, experiences, et cetera. Um, but having the right team, it's one of the top three reasons companies fail. When you look at Crunchbase's great research on the 20 reasons startups fail, um, not having the right team is right up there in the top three. And no, having no market is the first one. That's the most in, incredible one where there's just not really a market. It's a great idea with, it's a solution looking for a problem. Um, that's kind of the gist of the first reason. And then running out of money, um, money is always an issue, but they can get, those can be mitigated if you have the right team. I actually believe the reasons number one and two can get completely mitigated if you have the right team. So 
even though it's not considered the number one reason, I think it is one of the most important ones. Because if you don't have the right team, if you have the right team, they'll figure out that the market doesn't exist or that we need to manage our money differently. And so I feel like those first two reasons um, will go away uh, or certainly be mitigated. So to me, having that right team is just, uh, if you don't have the right team at the outset, you're, it's going to be difficult, I think, to, to make the kind of forward progress that you need to as a business. It's hard doing startups. I did a lot of them. I've had some spectacular failures in my day. Um, either I didn't have the right team. We made some mistakes. Timing was against us. I, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, some of which were, were unfortunately completely within our control. Others were not. And that's life, right? Sometimes things will happen that are uh, not in your control and you just have to manage them. And so to me, the right team is really almost the most important one. I think it'll manage the rest of it uh, better than it could be managed otherwise if you don't have it. And I wholeheartedly support that because I think that while you're building out that MVP or you're going to market, there's a lot of things that obstacles that get in your way. And sometimes uh, you get the blinders on. The passion is too strong and you're not actually seeing that there these uh, obstacles are in the way and you're burning time, you're burning money, and you're not pivoting or you're not changing your outlook. And I think having a great team, even if it's one, two, three people behind you, uh, they're gonna see these things as well and somebody's gonna put their hand up as long as you didn't hire everybody as being a passive um, team member, uh, that you've got some aggression there and some aggressive yeah. hustlers, that they're gonna put their hand up and, and you know they're gonna fight back. And I think that those are the things that help make and break your team. And uh, I've even started looking at team a lot stronger than I've had in the past, uh, only because sometimes I think, yeah, these are great people, but how baked in are they really onto this? Are they going to yeah. be here for at least two years or are they going to be in and out in six months? And you're going to be struggling trying to get this to work because you didn't raise that next round fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so many different elements that come into that wholeheartedly to make that a good, a good model. Two points I'll, I'll extend your comment, and I, I agree completely with you, but two points I'll extend. One is I don't think of the team as just the co-founders and the employees. I think of it as the advisors who are also surrounding you. And I will tell you as an advisor to a handful of companies, um, I tell every kind of team that I'm an advisor to, consider me a team member. Don't look at me as you only get to call me, you know, once every quarter with a, a one hour meeting and an update. Um, call me when you need something. Call me when you want to have a sounding board discussion. Um, I get involved in very operational level issues with a lot of the companies that I'm an advisor to um, simply because I, I bring a different voice. I'm not saying I'm right, but I bring a different perspective and a different set of experience than the other team members. I don't consider myself anything different than the other team members, but I think it extends the team of hopefully smart people of which I'd like to at least try to include myself, um, to bounce these ideas off of, you know, figuring if it's a pricing strategy, a go-to-market strategy, a business model, um, whatever it may be, having more smart voices to bounce that off of is got to result in a better outcome in my view. And so I try to just keep my hand up in the air as a volunteer to be one of those sounding board voices. The other thing um, I was going to say, I had a second point I was going to make to your, your comment. I, it's floated out, so I'll come back to it if it comes back to me. Awesome. Well, either way, that uh, I, I like the idea of um, being a sounding board and bringing the advisors in, but utilizing everybody on that team. Um, and uh, I wrote it down just because I'm going to make sure that now I'm bringing you into the supporters fund OPN side of things. Sure. So now you're going to be a sounding board. 
uh, because oh. you volunteered. Yeah, yeah it's my, all my point. My point came back to me. You made a comment about passive team members. Yes. Our... Oh, we lost your audio. Oh, there we go. Are we back? Yeah, yeah. Okay. One of the things I encourage the employees to do very early on, and it's often something as co-founders that just kind of, it slips just because they're focused on the business things. I actually encourage them to put their employment agreements in place very quickly and to put a vesting schedule on themselves. I say for two reasons. I say, you want to raise investment? That's going to be part of the due diligence. So you may as well get it done now because you don't want to scramble when you have an investor waiting for your due diligence stuff. And now you're scrambling to reach out to your attorney to get these employment agreements done. So just get them done now. And I typically will involve a, uh, uh, the recommended approach is a four-year vest with a one-year clip. So you know nobody's leaving within a year. And if they do, they don't take equity. So that's fine. If they don't work out, they don't take anything. Um, and I, I recommend that because I've had to negotiate on behalf. Now it's happened only twice, fortunately, and I hope it doesn't happen anymore. But I've had to negotiate with founding team members who remained to negotiate down a founding team member who left and took 35% of the equity with them. Well, no investor is going to invest 65 cents on the dollar. Yeah. I put a dollar in, 35% goes to that guy. Who is that guy? Who is that lady? They're not, are they here? They're on the cap table. They have 35%. And then they go, oh, no, they were my co-founder, but they're gone. Yeah, but they own 35%. So I put a buck in, only 65 cents goes to the business. 35 cents is owned by them, not yeah. doing it. So I always try to make sure those things get sorted out very quickly um, in the founding teams. And uh, that way, again, it comes up in due diligence. So I kind of use that as my lever to get them to act. Otherwise, they'll kind of leave that on the back burner. But I always say you have to be link ready. Link ready means an investor says, I'm interested. You send them a link to your due diligence online deal room. Because if you wait, delay with that, with that scenario, delay is the death knell. So you may as well just get everything in a deal room, have all your agreements in a folder, your business plans, et cetera, your partnership agreements, incorporation documents, just put it all in one centralized location and then just copy the link in, copy their email, you're done. Let them look to their heart's content. But don't start scrambling when that question comes in and says, send me more info. I love it. Yeah, we do that with uh, all of our Skip the Line events. We make sure that they have a full DD. Now we yep. only put it at 65% full because if we had them do everything we do in due diligence, then we would need to be booking these things out four months in advance yeah, to yeah. get the paperwork done. Sure. So we try to get as much of the good stuff that the investors require, and then they can work on the other elements. But I agree wholeheartedly yep. that that is, it's very important to the business and to the investor. That's one of the elements of our Silicon Valley in your pocket program is every company will finish with a essentially completed deal room. I love it. I love it. So now that you've, uh, you've, you've kind of got some, some great basis points here for really helping this, the startups uh, focus on co-founders, focus on their business, what are some of the things that you talk about that you feel really leverage that startup to make them more impressive to an investor outside of obviously having their deal room ready, which is great, but Hey, maybe I don't have the best idea or maybe I don't have the best structure set up. What things can I do to make myself more attractive? So people like yourself are going to jump all over me. Um, I think a lot of these things are uh, generic because I deal with companies across different kind of industries and most of the mostly pre-series A seed stage or pre-seed. So the stage is more the common thing for me. But the thing that's going to make it most attractive beyond like the things we've touched on, the right team. Again, I do believe the right team will figure out all those, you know, they'll be able to navigate the, the uh, challenging waters of just the startup world. 
Um, but if you have the right team, obviously I want to see a, a good market size. I want to see a growing market that's relatively large already, but growing. I often say a, a, a large market that's shrinking doesn't necessarily give me a lot of confidence. So I look for large markets that solve a real problem. Um, I have to somewhat be able to relate to the problem. I don't have to understand it intimately because I don't have that broad base of a knowledge and that depth. Um, but I have to be able to understand the problem. And so to me, one of the things that really differentiates companies early on is just the way they communicate the problem. Because a lot of companies talk in, um, as I would like to, as I'd like to describe it, they, they talk in concepts and statistics. Uh, just as, a, as an example, simple example, they'll say depression is really a big thing, teen suicide's big, and we're going to create an app that allows, you know, uh, kids to, you know, deal with uh, those kinds of negative feelings. And so they'll talk about the statistics of how many kids, you know, may go down that path, how many kids are taking antidepressant, uh, antidepressant drugs, or how many kids commit suicide. And those are, you know, obviously things people can relate to. The problem is statistics and concepts don't stick in our brains. What sticks in our brains as human beings is stories and people. And so I often say there, when people will walk me through their deck initially, I'll often say something like, well, you're missing Gary or you're missing Julia. And they'll say, well, what's Gary? Who's Gary or Julia? And then I'll describe them in, in characteristics, like five, six little quote, verbal bullet points that describe who they are but in, in such a way that it's highlighting the problem, that the next page, the solution that they're bringing is actually going to solve that problem. And I always tell people, if as an investor, you don't have me in the first 30 seconds of your story, of your pre presentation, you won't have me for the rest. You have to hook me. It's like catching a fish. You got to set the hook and then reel it in. If you don't have me, you're not going to get me later. It's not like on slide seven, I'll start paying attention if I didn't like the first six slides. So I feel like when you tell that story of a person, the, in, the objective is by the bottom of that first slide where I'm introducing Gary, I'm introducing Julia, I have to be nodding my head saying, I am that person, I know that person, I totally understand and relate to that person. If I'm saying anything that's close to any of those statements, you've got me. And now I want to know what are you going to do to solve the problem that that person's experiencing because I so relate to it. So the instance, for example, of this um, depression and suicide mobile app, um, we introduced the, the founder happened to be a Persian gentleman and we introduced a young Persian teen who was born in Minnesota. He's 15 years old and he's born in America. His parents happen to be immigrants from Azerbaijan and they're of Muslim faith. And because of all the Muslim rhetoric that's on TV, the kids in school are picking on him and bullying him. He's anxious about his own safety and that of his mom and his dad and his siblings. And he just doesn't know where to go with this. He's a 15-year-old boy, so he wants to be strong and manly. And so he's just in a bind. He doesn't know where to turn and where to get help. And then the next page says, here's this great app. He can, he can get support anonymously. And that, just that flow changes everything in my representation as, or my interest level, I should say, as an investor. When I can relate to the kid and I'm thinking, wow, kids are jerks and they're picking on this poor kid and I feel for him. And then you tell me what you're going to do to solve that problem. And then you're going to show me how big of a business it is, how you're going to get everyone to be aware of the app you built. There's no build in and they will come. And you walk through all the other elements that you and I look at every day in businesses, the go-to-market strategy, the business model, et cetera. Um, you never have to bring that individual back up, but at least you've set the hook. 
in the very beginning, the one thing this gentleman did do, he had been struggling raising capital, was he introduced the child, the, the young boy in the beginning, and then on his thank you slide at the very end, all he said was, please help me help the Camerons of the world. And it just brought that emotion right back where everybody in the audience was sitting there going, yeah, why are school kids at that age such jerks to each other? What can I do to help you help those kids? Because I can relate. I have a kid that's in school at that age, and I wouldn't want them being bullied. Like you bring that emotion in and that relatability changes absolutely everything in terms of the reception you're going to get to your pitch. So very, very long-winded answer, and I apologize and appreciate your patience in letting me get it out. But it's how I really think companies can differentiate themselves is tell the story in a way that's going to sink in. And, and I think what, what you're, the underlying thing is that if you build the right narrative, people can feel part of the story and they're going to want to help you action out that end result. Well, you can present the business concept and support it with a lot of statistics, or you can present a story about a person that I can relate to. Yep. Ultimately, the statistics and concept don't come out of the deck. They just get overlaid, if you will, with a story and a person that I can I can kind of latch onto as an investor because concepts and stats go out of my head. If you're one of 10 presenters that night, I can guarantee if you're anywhere not in the last one or two, I am not gonna remember all your statistics, but I am gonna remember Cameron, that kid who's being bullied by a bunch of other 15 year old jerks in school. And I feel bad for that kid. And that's the way you differentiate. You tell a story that's gonna stay in my head um, and, and separate yourself from the pack. We all hear too many pitches that's not the problem isn't deal flow shortage. That is not the challenge investors deal with. The one is finding the ones that make sense, are relatable, and that you want from an emotional perspective and financial perspective to get behind and support. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's perfect. It, it kind of reminds me, and, I, and I'm trying to remember the name, and I think it's probably what it is, but uh, when I worked in Loblaws back in my uh, IT days, yeah. uh, we had a management meeting, and... Uh, we built this presentation to really show how e-commerce was going to change the way online worked at Loblaws back in 2005, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, we did the presentation and it was based off of, I, I'm pretty sure this is it, but we only quote me, but her name was Karen. And uh, <laughs> we made it all about Karen. And it was her life journey of what she was going to be able to do now online and also in store. So how do we take that? in store, make it online and then bring her back in store. And what were the things that she was going to purchase and what was she going to buy? And then it started to cascade into every division and group in there. You know, that's where they came up with Joe clothing. They did all these great things, sure. but it was the journey of that one person that made you feel like, wow, you're right. I see where she's going. I see what she's doing. And that's why she's going to buy makeup and perfume at a grocery store. That's why she's going to get her kids clothes. I'm on. I love this. I'm going to follow that journey. They can all relate to Karen. And that's, that's where that persona, the whole concept of the persona, is so, uh, so incredibly important. The other really big, big thing that I think a lot of companies um, don't focus on, you brought up the term a, a little while ago, the acronym MVP. I uh, am approached by lots of teams, and they're always so enthusiastic about saying, oh, and we, we built our MVP. And I normally ask a question. First, I normally I want to throw them onto their heels a little bit and say, I say something along the lines of, that's cute, but I really don't care. And they'll be like, what do you mean? Like, we, we have our MVP, we're really excited. And I ask one question. Is anybody deriving the benefits you tell them they'll get from your, your product by using your MVP? 
And normally the answer is no at that stage, normally. Sometimes it's yes. And I say, then it's not about building the product because MVP just tells me as a, as a prospective investor, you can build something. What it doesn't tell me is that the thing you built is actually delivering and it's the vehicle for delivering benefits to somebody. That is what I call MVT, minimum viable traction. Traction to me is defined as your thing is delivering the benefits that you say it can deliver so that somebody is either realizing them or at least has clear visibility to realizing them. And that's fine to me, especially early stage. Um, if you just show them that it's capable of delivering those benefits, that is sufficient to me for traction. Um, you don't have to have the whole thing done and, you know, uh, uh, soup to nuts. It just has to be, somebody has to either see that, wow, this will deliver the benefits where you are, you're telling me I'll get, or it's actually delivering me a subset of those benefits in its current stage. And I'm excited by that. That is way more important to me. So I really want people to talk to me much more about traction than building. Building something is easy. Delivering value through that something is much more challenging. I won't be able to uh, hold this one back, but MVT, I am going to use that. Yeah, feel free. It's not um, exclusively mine. So I, <laughs> I gain no royalties out of the deal. Oh, that's too bad because this is gold. I love no, that. There, there's it's a good. wonderful book by a colleague in the industry named Bruce Cleveland, and it is on traction. It's called The Traction Gap. Bruce um, used to work with my ex-wife, actually. Um, and I maintained it. I had gotten in touch with him as an investor. He ran a, a venture firm for a while. I don't think he's doing that anymore. But at that time, I had this whole concept of traction being the most important things. And in our meeting together, um, he shared, oh, he was surprised that we were coming to him to talk about traction, my business partner and I. And he said, I'm actually writing a book on traction. And we started talking about some of the principles. And I don't know where, if he brought it up, if we brought it up, I don't know where the term came from. I'm going to give him credit because I think that's probably closer to accurate. And he, he mentioned this notion of minimum viable traction. And I just absolutely loved it. It encapsulated everything that I have been preaching to the startups that I work with. Well, you know, it's carrying through across the border to Canada now. So that's there amazing. Go. There you go. No, I love it. Uh, well, we're, uh, man, I think uh, we said this the other day, we could probably talk for hours uh, about so many different elements of I agree. the startup world. So this is brilliant. Uh, but we're, we are going to move, even though there's so much other stuff that uh, I wanted to ask you. Actually, you know what I'm going to ask anyways, because sure. I'm going to pretend time didn't matter. Uh, you talked a lot about risk. And what are those risk factors? And um, one of the things that uh, I've been talking about for years is that I need to de-risk my business to ensure that investors will have a way in with ease. So just like a customer will walk through your beautiful UX and get that output so that MVT is perfect, uh, there's also the same side on when it comes to the risk side of helping this, the investor just want in right away. Is there any outside of the team and things like that? You talk about this in your videos. There are a couple of things just quickly that you want to touch on that really make a difference in helping a startup value risk. Yeah, I think, I think startup founders need to understand that investors, yes, they take risks. They're early stage investors. So by definition, they're taking risk by investing in early stage companies where they are the most risky. Um, at the same exact time, their objective is to mitigate that risk as much as they can. And so 
their concerns are certainly going to be around a, a variety of risk factors, one being execution risk. Is this team, hopefully you have the right team, is this team capable of executing this idea? I like the idea. I think it's warranted. I think there's an opportunity somewhere in the world for this idea. The question is, is the team that's in front of me and in, at the helm of this opportunity capable of executing the risk? And so you have to do everything you can to demonstrate, you know, whether through uh, prior experience or um, maybe some unique subject matter expertise that you have, something, whatever it is possible that you can do to mitigate and um, mitigate their concerns that you have the ability to execute and to demonstrate that you have the ability to execute. In addition, the biggest one that I see happening with startups is they'll approach a group of investors and they'll say, for example, we need a million and a half dollars to take this to the next level. And if I don't know this group, a million and a half, uh, at least in seed and pre-seed, the stage I generally play in, um, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money in any context, but it's not a lot of money to a billion dollar hedge fund, but it's a lot of money in, my, in the worlds I'm operating in. And so I'll often say, so what happens if you don't raise a million and a half? They say, well, that's what we need to get to the next level. I say, what, show me what we're going to get for all the million and a half. If you got a million and a half today, what are you going to get over the next, say, 18 to 24 months? And they'll draw out, you know, seven, eight, nine milestones or, of some sort. And I'll say, so suppose I can only give you 20% of that. What are you going to do in the next 90 days? And it's a, it's a way of beginning the journey of saying, I'll give you a little bit if you prove that you can execute and deliver on the things you say you can deliver. If you say you're going to get these three milestones in the next 90 or 100, 100 or so days, I'll give you 20% of your ask, but I want to see that you're going to execute and achieve those milestones because now I'm only risking 20% or 300,000 in my example, as opposed to here's a million five. I hope it works out well. And if, if you're a smart entrepreneur, you say, you know what? We understand your concerns about execution risk. So just give us 20%. Let us knock out this subset of milestones. And if we do, agree with us now that you'll give us another tranche of money. And so this kind of staged or stair step is the approach I call it a tranched style of investing. But I think if you approach investors as the entrepreneur that way, you're demonstrating just in the fact of saying it that way, we understand where you're at. And we're talking to you on your terms, not our terms. That's a very powerful way of approaching investors. So I think that's a big one. As we said, market risk is, is the number one reason companies fail. So do everything in your power to show that there's a real market. That's why this whole lean methodology of interviewing 100 prospects, getting real information that there's really a problem and you've spoken to the market, the target market representatives, you've got that information, you've got some validating metrics around price points and how painful this you know, challenge you're trying to solve for is. And then that also helps you focus on strategic investors versus what I just call capital investors. Capital investors to me are like somebody walking up to a roulette table and placing a dollar chip on 10 numbers. They don't care which of the 10 numbers come up, they just want one of their numbers to hit so that it covers their other losers. Strategic investors actually care about your business, your success, and they wanna see you succeed because somehow it positively impacts their own business. And so I would say focus on that set, even though it's a much smaller pool of investors, you'll have a much higher probability of success with those. And it'll also, again, say something when you're talking to an investor about why you want them in. It's not just about money, it's value beyond the money, value beyond the capital, as I call it. So I think showing investors those kinds of things really helps mitigate their risks, uh, various risk profiles of the market, of the investment itself, of execution, uh, et cetera. And I think those are really important ways 
um, to highlight those things. And the very last one, I would say, is the defensibility risk. You know, they have to make sure that your IP is is truly defensible and that someone's not going to copy it in a month and your advantage, your competitive advantage is going to be gone. So show them that you understand the needs to defend whatever your intellectual property is. And I say that not to imply intellectual property means patent. It could be a patent. It could just be a bunch of other things. Uh, but that somehow whatever it is you're creating is defensible. I love it. Those are three valuable points on how to de-risk your business and get investors more interested in you quicker. Um, Jeff, that was awesome. Uh, we're now kind of at that stage in the uh, in our event right now, or our show that we got to jump into the rapid fire questions. Fire so, away. Uh, as much as I would love to keep going down this journey of, of making the best pitch, uh, I think we've got a lot of valuable insight there. But for the startup, for these questions, um, we're going to do real quick. So I'll ask, and then you uh, you throw out your best uh, your best point, and then I will. I'll do quick. I'll do quick answers on these. I promise. Okay, I love it. All right. Uh, what got you started in early stage investing? Uh, wanting to support people like myself. I was an early stage entrepreneur for a long time and I wanted to, when I reached the financial circumstances where I could, I, I immediately said, I'm going to support people just like me. Like I wished more people did when I was there. Love it. What's your favorite part of startup investing? Meeting these amazingly innovative, creative, and very capable people. Many times I was going to say young people, many times they are young, um, but they don't have to be. I've worked with some you know, older, more mature entrepreneurs, but just meeting these amazing creative and innovative people that come up with ideas that on my best day, I could never come up with and, and having value that I can bring to them that helps take those ideas forward. Perfect. Uh, how many companies or dollars do you invest per year? Uh, per year is interesting. I have about, I have holdings in about 150 or so companies, uh, right now. Um, some of that comes through my accelerator. Some of that comes through direct investment. So I, I would say probably a, uh, maybe about half a dozen to 10 individual investments I'll make in a given year, generally between 25 and 50K initial investment. And I'll go in further if I see progress. Awesome. Uh, any notable portfolio companies you'd like to share? Um, don't know where it's going to go. Um, but I am an investor in Berkeley Skydeck, which is the Berkeley University, Berkeley's incubator and accelerator and their fund specifically. And one of theirs that is, I didn't personally make the investment, but is Lime, the, um, the kind of uh, gig economy, the scooter kind of the, the Lime bike. So that one is the first, uh, what I'll call unicorn that I was even remotely a part of very much an outsider to it. So I don't have any investments that have gone on to do anything close to that myself personally. I have had a couple of exits, small exits uh, on my portfolio. Uh, so I've been very proud of that. I've got a couple of companies now that are raising uh, eight figure uh, series A's. So I'm very proud of that. And I've had a couple that have gone uh, um, out of business, unfortunately. So um, that, that would be the one that comes to mind is the, that, that, the fact that I even have something to do with a, a unicorn investment. Very awesome. Well, we have some companies for you too, so we'll share those later. But Perfect. all right, next one. Um, what verticals do you like to focus on or you're agnostic? Generally agnostic, but I would say I lean into SaaS kind of business opportunities. Um, I do have an inclination towards enterprise solutions as well. So where larger enterprises can benefit from the, the widgets. I'm not a huge B2C guy. 
Um, I have a couple in that realm, but I generally focus more enterprise and SaaS, kind of recurring business model opportunities. Okay. Do you have any preferred terms on investment that you like? Preferred shares or is it commons? Is it notes? Uh, I generally do notes, convertibles. I'm not a big proponent, in fact, of startups, uh, early stage, pre-series A startups even using anything other than a note. I think uh, if you're going in for a price round at that, a, at that stage of your business, I think it's... Uh, to me, it's not uh, the best approach to raising capital. So I, I generally go in on convertible or safe notes. Timelines for investment? When you say timelines. One to three months. They come to you, they pitch, you like it, you work with them in three months. Oh, I mean, there, there have been some I've done in a week if I really liked it and I, I jumped in. Um, I don't tend to be a... Uh, I don't, I'm not one of these folks that's going to grill down um, or drill down deeply into the due diligence. I really spend time with the team. I do more of a gut feel with the individuals. I'd certainly look at those due diligence materials, but um, I, don't, I don't spend an excessive amount of time on that. It's much more about the idea, the team, et cetera. Other people involved as well. I like to see who else is engaged. Okay. Uh, do you lead rounds, take board seats? I don't lead rounds. I'm definitely a, a smaller participant in, in the companies that I've engaged in. I do take advisory board seats. Again, I do not encourage my startups that I work with to even extend board seats to anybody until they get to um, kind of formalized venture, you know, or angel group uh, investment rounds. So I have board seats, advisory board seats on a number of companies, but that's it. Not, not formal board seats. Okay. Amazing. Well, that hits up our uh, speed round. Fantastic. So now we've got really like maybe a couple of quick questions for you. Sure. Uh, the one I always like to kind of better understand if you've got one of those exciting or even non-exciting, probably more exciting always works. Uh, startup feels for a company that you thought, wow, these guys really did a great job. I don't know how she did it, but she pulled the cat out of the bag. She worked this one, thought it was going to fail. And now they're, you know, unicorn status, like anything like that. Well, so I have two that come to mind just hearing your question. One is, and you said she is in, in your hypothetical, and I actually have a female founder. I've invested in two rounds of her business. I've yet to meet her in person. We've known each other for four years, and I am one of her key advisors in her business. She created a ride hailing, so just think Uber or Lyft or something of the sort, uh, business for people who travel with pets. A lot of times she was traveling with her pets and she'd call a, one of these Uber or Lyft. They'd show up and they'd say, hey, you can't get in my car with the, the pets, the dogs. And she got so frustrated. She just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to start a business for this. Because she asked around lots of her colleagues who had pets were finding similar scenario. She um, relocated herself uh, from the West Coast to New York City, launched the business, um, struck a, a partnership with a very large uh, pet, one of the top two pet industry uh, participants. And what was really interesting when COVID hit, she's in Manhattan, right? So like Toronto, Manhattan shut down and uh, Uber and Lyft lost about 90%, between 85 and 90% of their business. She pivoted and went towards veterinary groups and people needed their animals to go in for pet care. And she dropped, her business only dropped off about 20%. And she did over 10,000 rides per month now. Over 75% of the rides are animal only. Amazing. That's Amazing pretty cool. pivot. I uh, have nothing but great respect for the, uh, the founder of this business. The second one is a company that has a hardware appliance, not something I normally lean into. I'm not a big proponent personally on hardware investments. I, I get 
yeah, I'm using hardware to talk to you, so I get the value of hardware. It's just a harder business from an investor's perspective. Um, but this company made a device that removed um, odor-causing bacteria. So just think about your workout clothes, that even though you launder them, they still might contain odor bacteria, and they still don't smell spring fresh, so to say. Well, if that was their target, they were targeting kind of high-end clothing that's hard to launder or dry clean or sports clothing, et cetera. Then COVID hit, and they pivoted into COVID, and their device unbeknownst to them, but now known to them, it also kills the COVID-19 virus. And so they've taken a complete pivot away from the sports and hard to wash or launder clothing. And they're going right after the first responder markets and selling into hospitals and nursing homes, et cetera, um, where their device can allow for repurposing or reusing, I should say, PPE, all of this protective, uh, personal protective equipment, masks, et cetera where unfortunately due to shortages, people are having to reuse it and that's causing a lot of concern and potentially transmitting you know, from one room, one patient's room to another, et cetera. And so they've pivoted and now they're um, totally going after the COVID-19 virucidal, uh, where things that kill viruses uh, use case. And it's been a really amazing turn. They've got some amazing partnerships going. I've actually jumped in operationally to help this company because I want to do something in the COVID world to, be, to feel useful. And they have an opportunity, and I'm, I'm lending, if you will, my skill sets and experiences to the operating team now. So that was also a great pivot um, in a very difficult environment. Amazing. Well, those are awesome stories, and thank you for sharing that. So now we're going to do a little quick section on more personal things. And I learned this actually through one of the startups you work with. I was listening to their podcast, and I was like, this is phenomenal. i got to take some of this. Um, we missed one at the beginning when I usually asked them to give you a bit brief about yourself i do ask give me one thing about you that nobody would know so i throw that one out there and then i got these three little questions for you but one thing no one will know about jeff wallace well some people may know it only because i share it occasionally it's just one of the more fascinating and enjoyable things that's occurred for me during my journey as a business professional entrepreneur i've had a chance i call it my fun fact when i do keynotes and it's called the steves and I've had the um, amazing fortune to work with both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak of Apple. Um, Steve Jobs, back when I had a startup and we partnered with Apple um, in the late 90s, and Steve Wozniak when I became a uh, keynote speaker internationally, and Steve and I have shared a stage on two occasions together. One. Um, once it was just Steve and myself, and the other it was myself, Steve, and the uh, creator of Waze, an Israeli entrepreneur by the name of Yuri Levine. So to be on stage with people like that, I mean, humbling doesn't cover it. I mean, it's just astounding, and uh, it's definitely something that's been a really, really exciting part of my journey uh, to be able to correspond and communicate with people like that. I'm still uh, occasionally in communication with Steve Wozniak, um, just on, on emails. Um, but th that, that I kind of pinch myself that I'm in that realm. So that's amazing. I thought, yeah. I thought you were going to go into dancing with the stars and that uh, you guys were competing <laughs> on stage or something. So I, I think he would have actually done, I think he performed better than I would have performed. So <laughs> well, he did an all right job. So uh, there you go. Cut the first time. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, all right. Next one is uh, your favorite movie. My cousin Vinny. And what character would you play? Oh, Vinny. Definitely Vinny. I'm from Brooklyn, so I was born in Brooklyn. My whole family, my mom, dad, and my siblings, both uh, both of them and myself, all born in Brooklyn. 
Um, and so that movie, just for whatever reason, resonated a lot with me, just the whole difference of New Yorkers down in the uh, in the South dealing with what they were dealing with. So that movie oh, is one awesome. of my all-time favorites. There's I'm one other I will throw in that's almost equal. Um, it's a movie called The In-Laws. It's a little bit old school, but it's with Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. Um, not the remake of it, which was later. That was terrible. But the old original In-Laws just okay. always a great laugh. Awesome. Um, and the last one, your favorite sports team? Favorite sports team is probably the Golden State Warriors uh, basketball. They have been an amazing on uh, an amazing run, not this past couple of seasons, but uh, the several before that. And they have just they dominate the airwaves here in the Bay Area, and they are just such a truly fun team to watch. And I've had again good fortune to meet a couple of the players, and that kind of endears you a little bit more to a team as well. So. Uh, that's brilliant. I love it. Well, well, Jeff, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Uh, very insightful, as I always do. I took lots of notes um, and uh, a big fan. I uh, enjoyed all of the insights that you provided. Um, I had to change it up by offering some little personal stuff. But at the end of the day, I think it's all valuable. Uh, we're going to share this out uh, across our network. Uh, I believe they were probably It'll go live, I think, sometime in December, but we'll let you know when it goes live. Okay. Um, just because we do one a week, so we've got to catch up. Got queue, yeah. yep. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll do two weeks so we can get there faster. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, pure pleasure. And the last thing we like to do is we like to leave the last segment for you, which is do you have anything you want to say to the investor community or to a startup? Any words of advice, but we give you the last word. So I thank you again for your time. Well, I want to thank you in response to that, just for allowing me to come and share and talk. I think you said it a couple of times here. I can talk with you know you and these topics all day long. I, uh, I'm very, very passionate about it. And to come across others like yourself who are equally passionate about this space is always fun. Um, so thank you for that. My, I guess if I had a parting thought for investors in today's age, I would say, um, don't hold back. I know a lot of investors are holding back. Now, you made reference very early on to investors, you know, money flowing freely or money flowing relatively freely to startups and not to other companies. But I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of investors holding back, waiting to see maybe the results of the election or how the economy is going to fare. I would say support innovators. We're going to have to innovate our way out of the, where we are and they need capital. I mean, capital to me in a startup is like gasoline in a car. You can't really go anywhere if you don't have a little bit in there. So um, unless you have an electric car, which I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so I would say, please continue supporting. Every little bit helps. It's almost like a telethon when you're a startup founder. You know, 10,000 here, 25,000 there. You don't have to, you know, throw all in on one. But continue supporting the innovative startup ecosystem. That's what I would recommend. I love it. Well, Jeff, again, thank you for your time today. Very valuable. Um, have a fantastic day. I'm sure the weather's uh, doing okay there now in California. So get out there, enjoy your day. Thank you again. And we'll Perfect. keep you posted on uh, when we're ready to release. But thanks again. That sounds great, Jeffrey. Thank you. I look forward to it. And hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Oh, guaranteed. You bet. Wonderful. Take care for now. You bet. All the best. Ciao. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that was pretty awesome, man. Like... So much good information. Uh, I love the fact that he talked about being a sounding board for his investments, working with him over 150 investments. And that all became through accelerators, invest, personal investment, all that great stuff. Uh, really doing a phenomenal job on that. Great background, working through lots of different uh, enterprise, worked in big business, 
Um, I really like the, uh, the Greyhound bus, you know, potential opportunity. You need a co-founder because at the end of the day, if something goes wrong on one side, you need to fix it and correct it. And nobody wants to go through that. So always make sure that you're building a great team. That's going to help you become investable. And you talked about so many of these great different elements to make your business awesome. So I implore you guys to obviously read through this, listen, lots of good content. Uh, what other things like, can I say that were really good? You know, the 100 customers, strong IP, uh, doing everything you can to get to that. And the number one thing was that MDT, most viable traction. Is it working? Are you getting anything from this? Are investors going to see this? MVP is great. At the end of the day, you get your product out to market, slim trim and right to the market. But at the end of the day, are you getting any traction? Thank you, guys. Have a fantastic day.